10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. The novelist Charles Dickens begins uh, Tale of Two Cities by saying it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and he could have been talking about investors in GameStop, right? Think about that. Uh, right? If you invested in GameStop a month ago, right, and, and then he sold about two weeks ago, it's been the best of times, but oh my gosh, if he held on to it, you know, right? or maybe you began your investment right around when it was hitting its mark and then uh, watching it collapse, I mean... It's a great story because it's right in front of our faces, this whole issue that we're talking about today, which is contentment. I mean, our whole lives feel like they're full of discontent. And not just the, the last 12 months. I mean, it's been hard enough. I mean, that's true even when things are going swimmingly well, we might say. And we've been in a series, if you've been with us for a period of time, we've been in a series called Letters to a Son. What we've been doing is looking at a conversation that Paul's been having with his spiritual son, Timothy, who's a pastor over the church in Ephesus. And what Paul has been lining up for Timothy is to understand what does it look like to be a healthy Christian and what does it look like to be part of a healthy church. And as we've been saying, this is what we want this series to be about. And so we turn our attention, as I said here, to a very important discipleship issue, and that is the issue of contentment. Now, maybe as you were heard it read, you're wondering, what is that first part where Paul's talking about uh, the, the false teachers and, and the sound doctrine, and then all of a sudden he switches gears, and he's talking about contentment and things related to money. Now, as you're going to see, this is not a non sequitur, two unrelated items pressed against each other. No, instead, these are intimately connected because this is about our hearts, about what is it that we want more than anything else. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to, to see, first of all, something that's been lost. And then number two, what we're going to see is something that's gained, and you can probably guess what that is. But then the question is, how do we actually get it? That's the last thing. So something lost, something gained, and then lastly, how do we get the contentment that we're made for? So first, something lost. And there are three things that are lost here in the passage, and you're going to see there's a natural progression of things along the way. Here's the first thing. Lost truth. Look at verses 3 through 5. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means 
of gain. And so beginning in chapter 1, you already know this, that, that, uh, that Paul has primarily been addressing the issues regarding what he calls the false teachers. These are, are leaders of the church who unfortunately are teaching something other than the gospel, teaching other than what he says in verse 3, the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ, sound words, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Paul's an apostle, which means he has the authority of Jesus Christ to teach and lead the church. And, and what he says is that the, 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 the focus, the center of your attention must be in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has consistently has been saying that through the book of 1 Timothy. But as we look at these false teachers, what, what he basically, I think Paul would say, is these are the apostles of fake news. <laughs> Instead of the apostles of Jesus Christ, the apostles of fake news. And, and let me go on to say this, that, that essentially what's going on here is that, that the false teachers are giving a different, what we might call a plumb line, on which to build your life. When I was growing up, and I've mentioned this before, my grandparents, they had a tennis ball hanging from a piece of string in their garage. Some of you know your grandparents well. Uh, and that, that was there to allow you to pull the car into the garage and have just enough room so you wouldn't hit the wall of your house and the garage door could come down behind it, right? And I've been thinking about it. Actually, Kirsten's mother actually does that as well. Uh, so I don't even have to think about my childhood. I, I get to see that when we go down to Florida every year. And, and, and it's like a plumb line. It's something that, because of gravity, it is straight and true. Like when, when you leave the garage, you come back, it hasn't shifted. It's still exactly right where you left it. And, and what, what Paul is saying is that nature abhors a vacuum. And so if this will not be your plumb line, you will have something else that will become your tried, true center in life. But here's the problem with that. If everyone has a different plumb line, chaos ensues. And so, for instance, you can say this morning, you believe that, for instance, in the areas of sexuality, premarital sex is fine, but, but adultery is not. Okay, that's a plumb line. But then person B says, well, I think premarital sex is fine, but then also I don't know necessarily that adultery is uh, immoral. It's an issue. And person A looks at person B and says, how can you hold to that standard? I mean, adultery is wrong, but then person B looks at person A and says, why is that your plumb line? Why is my plumb line no better than yours? You see, it matters what your beginning point, what your foundation is. And what Paul says, if there's any plumb line, if there's any foundation other than Jesus Christ, anything goes. It's just, it, you become the sole determiner, which leads to the second thing here, and that is the lost perspective. Because look at verse 4 with me again. In verse 4, he says, if you depart from this plumb line, what happens? You become puffed up, become conceited. The other word in some translations is arrogant. And, and in a sense, it makes sense, right? Like if, if you say, all right, Jesus Christ, you're Lord of my life, in every aspect of my being, in my sexuality, in my finance, personal finance, in my relationships, in my ethics, in my workplace, marketplace, views of life, in all aspects of what it means to be human. Jesus, what do you say? Now that's saying, Jesus, you are Lord. But as soon as you say, well, I like what you say here about sexuality, but not so much about finance. Or I like what you say about finance, but not so much about sexuality, and so forth. You get me? And so what happens is you, you become a determiner of what you or how you will live your life. That makes you a God. And what Paul is saying, what I want you to hear, is that Paul is saying that when you choose to play God, that is the height of arrogance. That is being puffed up 
without wisdom, without understanding, as it says here. And then what necessarily follows from that in, this, in, in losing your perspective, he says here twice, he uses two different words, very similar in the Greek, the word unhealthy, and then towards the end of verse 5, he says becoming depraved in mind. Now both of these words, if we were to translate them as we do, but still thinking through the context of modern parlance, he's saying uh, to become unhinged. That's what that means. It's a mental health issue, we might say. Now, please hear me correctly on this. There are plenty of mental health issues that come about that have nothing to do with what Paul's talking about. You can have chemical issues in your brain and so forth. My wife and I were trained as counselors before we came here to Plant City Church, and and we know this firsthand. But what Paul is also clearly saying here as well is that you can become unhinged by moving away from the truth. In other words, you can come to a place in your life where you begin to believe the press about yourself. Or you begin to believe things that have no foundation in reality. Listen to what Ernest Becker said a half century ago. Ernest Becker was not a Christian, he was a secular writer, but listen. He says, if everyone loves roughly the same lies about the same things, then there is no one to call them lies. They jointly establish their own sanity and call themselves normal. You see? And so, plumb line. Depends on what you have. But Rebecca's saying, essentially, what happens uh, when you, you believe that which isn't true, and eventually you begin to believe this is the true reality, and people look around and you say, man, that is unhinged. I mean, we've been talking, we've been having conversations the last several weeks, nationally as well as here locally, of course. I mean, I've just read an article this past week about a supporter of the, the QAnon conspiracy. And, and it's sort of like, uh, she said, coming out of a cult, she's recognizing, man, I, why did I go down that road? Why did I, you know, I, at the time it seemed so real, everything that, that this was about. And, and now I'm, I'm recognizing, realizing that that's not reality. Exactly, Becker would say. Exactly. That, and so if you continue in a lost per- perspective, eventually it looks like normalcy. Becker's right. Paul's right here. What about your life, you see? I, I think about the, the creature called Smeagol in The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, of course. Before that hobbit Smeagol found the ring, he was just a natural hobbit, a normal one, just like Bilbo and Frodo and the gang, right? But what happened when he found the ring? He became that hideous creature named Gollum. There's something about acquiring the ring, acquiring the power that became the new normal, the new reality, as it were, for Gollum. And it turned into a hideous creature that began to destroy him from the inside out. Which leads, I think, to the picture here of the third thing that's lost. That if we continue to lose truth, if that leads to a loss of perspective on reality, thirdly, it leads to a loss of life itself. If you look there again at verse 4, Really, that whole list there about envy, deception, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction, depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. What is that? It's a death list is what it is. It's, it's what happens. Like, if, if that consumes your life, if that's who you are, if that's how you live your life, it's a destruction not only of your own soul, it is a destruction of those around you in which you engage with in these ways. And these are the false teachers. These were the leaders of the church, mind you, who were guilty of sedition, as it were, and caused the church 
to lose its bearing and its way. And in verse 9, listen to what it says there about the false teachers, but to us. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul now is is talking about money here. Now, this is that that transition. That's not a non sequitur. I hope you can begin to see how these things are now connected. Now, he's beginning to show you as an example, basically, because he's dealing with something in real life in the church there in Ephesus that he's speaking to. He says, look, this is a real issue that that these pastors, in, in essence, they're teaching what we might in modern times call a health and wealth prosperity gospel. Basically, and in, in, in the process, making themselves rich. Like if anyone, if you, if you know any stories about the health and wealth prosperity movement, every pastor in that movement is incredibly wealthy. Because it, it's a demonstration in that movement, in that philosophy, as it were, that God is good, that, that the pastor is living high on the hog, they might say. And Paul is saying that they've lost perspective on what is the purpose of the church and then what is the purpose of preaching within the church. They've lost the gospel, in other words. And so he says their lives, and then he says, broadly speaking, to all the members of the church, both then and as well as to us, as soon as you take your eyes off the prize, as soon as you take your eyes off the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something else, that vacuum, that plumb line, something else will take its place. And you think that's the place of contentment in your life. It leads to discontent, he says. And going back to the issue of money, listen to what N.T. Wright says in his commentary about this particular verse. This is many people give lip service to the maxim that money can't buy you happiness. But most give life service to the hope that it just might after all. The pursuit of happiness and the idea that this is a basic human right is all very well. But when it's taken to mean the unfettered pursuit of wealth, it turns into a basic human wrong. What's he saying? He's saying that there's nothing wrong with wealth in and of itself. And let's just, let's get honest together here, whether you're online or we're here together. Virtually every single person in this room is wealthy by two different standards, the world's standard as well as the biblical standard. We are wealthy individuals. We, most of us, have income beyond just the basics of Maslow's hierarchy of need. A shelf of, a roof over, excuse me, shelter for ourselves as well as clothing on our backs and so forth. That was verse 8. Because most of us have more than that. We can, we can choose to go out. We can choose to order in Uber Eats, those sorts of things. And what Paul would say, those are fine things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with wealth, he would say. But if wealth is the place of your security, if having things, material possessions and so forth, is the source of your identity, he says that's when discontent leads to ruin. He says, when it becomes your everything, because these things were not intended to bring us life in and of themselves. At best, they are a means to an end of something that God is pointing us towards. You know, I think about what, what Wright says here about wealth. I, some of you know this. I'm, I'm facing 50 this year in my life. Can't believe it. I'm about to lose my, my 40s. I thought that was kind of feeling kind of young. Now I'm not feeling so young anymore. Some of you are laughing at that, literally. So... So for the first time in my life, I really have become very interested in retirement accounts. <laughs> when you're in, like I've been investing in things along the way as a pastor for my like, 20s and my 30s and my 40s, but honestly, I just haven't thought much about it. You know, and, and a lot of you are younger than me, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, oh, that's, that's eons from now, decades from now. 
But when you turn 50, it begins to look pretty close. And, and so I've noticed that my interest in my retirement accounts has grown a lot in the last couple months. And as I was preparing the sermon, I've got to be honest with you and tell you that I began to ask this question of myself this week. And that is, what, what is a healthy perspective versus an unhealthy one? Like, how much is too much? Like, I can find myself looking at, like, how the stock market's doing, how, how my IRAs are doing, and so forth, and, and find myself saying, oh, I feel a little bit more secure. Stock market goes up. Like, I feel like there's a little bit of a greater investment in my security. Paul's talking about that here. And I, my guess is you know exactly what I'm talking about. And by the way, it may not be finances. You may be saying, that's not my cup of tea. It's probably something else. It could be a reputation. It could be achievement in the marketplace this morning. It could be something relationally. There'd be, there could be something that if you just had more of it, right, you'd feel better about yourself. But Jesus says this, Mark chapter 8, verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Yes, you can achieve a sense of security and identity in a superficial way if you have more in your bank account, Right? reputation, and so forth. Yes, there is a, but that doesn't necessarily bring contentment. In fact, it doesn't bring contentment. Those are not the same thing, Paul says. You can lose your own soul, the place of contentment. And if that describes you this morning, whether online or here, uh, I want you to hear something that C.S. Lewis said. If there are desires in you that nothing on earth can fulfill, it means you are built for something else. Isn't that beautiful? If as much as you go after in wealth and achievement, those things just don't tend to slake the thirst of your soul, Lewis is saying there may be something else you're built for, eternity. Which leads now to the second thing, something gained. There's a bit of a paradox going on. It's in verse 6. Look at it with me again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, Right before that, and I should have said this in verse 10, it says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is that, that picture of death on display here. But Paul says there in verse 6, Look, if you go after contentment via godliness, it completely reverses everything. Think about it this way. If you pursue wealth, if that's your goal in life, saying, I need to become rich. Whether, again, that's financially, whether it's reputationally, or something else. If you go after that, Paul says, you won't get the thing that you're actually going for. Because you're made for it. Like when you're going after wealth, when you're going after achievement, what you're actually looking for, Paul says, is contentment. You're actually looking for, it is well with my soul. But because that wasn't a vehicle meant to get you to the land of contentment, instead... You're left bereft of that. And so he says there's a paradox. In order to gain wealth, don't look for wealth. He says go after, go after godliness, he says. But with godliness, there comes contentment. And the word here in the original Greek is a word for financial wealth. The word gain here and contentment. It's a, he's saying, look, if you really want the thing that you think financial material wealth will get you, it's actually in godliness is what he's saying. It's actually in living a life after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Living your life after him. Last week we talked about godliness because it came up so many times in the passage right before this. 
God-likeness, to have the character of God, to live after that character. He says, in doing so, he says in this passage, now, therefore, you will find contentment, he says. And it leads to gaining new perspectives. Look at verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job said something very similar in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, naked I came into the world, and naked I will leave it. Basically, he's saying the, the, to gain perspective, here's that word gain again, to gain perspective is to look at the world and saying, these things that I have, they're temporary. And they are a gift of God. More on that in a second. But I see that they do not in themselves can give me life. And so I, I think about uh, the bumper stickers. You don't see them as much anymore. Um, I don't know why, but I remember back in the day, at least, uh, there used to be bumper stickers. He who dies with the most toys wins. And then, of course, someone came along with another bumper sticker and said, he who dies with the most toys still dies, right? Uh, I mean, duh, I mean, that's, that's how life is. And, and that's just something that John Rockefeller, or about John Rockefeller. John Rockefeller, back a century ago or so, he was the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffett of his day. I mean, he was worth billions and billions of dollars in 2021 dollars, at least. And... And when he died, an aide to John Rockefeller was asked by a journalist, how much did he leave behind? And with great snark, he responded, all of it. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter what the price. I mean, he left it all behind, and that's the point, right? And what Paul is saying is that's where life begins. That's where you begin to gain new perspective, is that you look at your life. And again, he's, he's not saying it matters how much you have here. What matters is your attitude towards what you do have. Listen to what Paul says in, in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying it doesn't matter if I have a bumper crop of mere material possessions. It doesn't matter if I'm famished. My identity is secure. And Paul, I think, is being very generous here because primarily he was without. <laughs> like, he didn't know a lot of abundance in his life. He didn't know a lot of plenty. He suffered a lot. In fact, he wrote the letter of Philippians from a jail cell prior to his execution, right, being beheaded. I mean, this is a profound, profound story here. Paul is saying, like, it doesn't matter how much I have in my bank account. It doesn't matter how my RA is doing. It doesn't matter how my, my career is going right now. It doesn't matter how much my house is worth. It doesn't, how much, it doesn't matter how much I have in my Robin Hood account. Right? It doesn't matter where my GameStop you know, is at right now. It's like what matters is my soul. What matters is that I have eternal perspective, knowing that my life echoes into eternity. Paul has, has gained that new perspective. And he says there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's saying, rather than being self-sufficient, I need to invest more in my bank accounts or I have what it takes here in my career. He's saying, no, I'm God-sufficient. It doesn't matter how much God has given me. I I will be God-sufficient in the little and in the lot. And so let me close this point here by giving you two points of wisdom, I think, about how it is that we gain contentment. Number one, rejoice with what you have. Think about what you have right now in your bank account. Think about what you have in your home. Think about 
the, the wealth that you have in your friendships and your family, right? Some of you are parents today. What is, what is your wealth? Some of you are married. What is your wealth? Some of you are single. What is your wealth? What is it that you have? Paul would say that, that you can have evidence that you have contentment when you can rejoice for what you have. Then it relates to the second thing. Because if you can rejoice, it leads to this. You give thanks for what you have. There's a lot of talk these days in both religious and non-religious circles about the practice of gratitude. And I'm grateful for that, pun intended. Like It's really good that people, whether religious or non-religious, are, are recognizing the power of gratitude. Gratitude takes you away from arrogance. It takes you away from, from conceit and, and those things that Paul's talking about. But, but it begs this question. If you're going to give thanks, who do you give thanks to? Because I see lots of people talking about, about, about giving thanks to the universe. But the universe is, is blind mechanical necessity. It's not personal. It doesn't care about your life. And so how is it that you give thanks to someone who doesn't care for you? If you feel in your bones the desire towards gratitude, it begs the question, who? And the answer is in the last thing here. This is actually how you get to the place of gratitude. And it's Jesus Christ himself. In verse 3, he says he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I think about that is what, what brought Paul to the place, the vantage point where he could say he's the Lord? Well, the answer is the life of Jesus Christ. It is the life and the death of Jesus Christ that made him Lord in the resurrection. What do I mean by that? In verse 9, it talks about temptation. It says it's a snare. A snare was a, something that was used to entrap a bird back in the day. And it's, it, once you're hooked in, no matter how much you try to get out, you are stuck. And that's what temptation does to us. That temptation comes along the way and it ensnares us. And the more that we, we fight against it, the more we resist sometimes, the more we get into that temptation. It's called addiction and so forth. So what, what did Jesus do? Hebrews 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews, listen to what he says about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. One of my favorite verses about the character of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is not someone who's so wholly other, he doesn't know what our lives are like. No, Jesus was someone who was tempted in every way. Think about that. Allow, your, allow yourselves to imagine what that meant for him. That meant sexual temptation, financial, ethical. I mean, Jesus was faced with every temptation, and yet he chose not to go down that road. And what did it mean that he did that? Because he lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve because we have been ensnared in temptation towards sin and death itself. couple nights ago uh, with the family we watched the matrix now i've seen it a billion times in the last two decades and kirsten has too it's one of her favorite movies of all time but my girls had never seen it i mean they weren't even born when it came out i mean some of you weren't even born when it came out practically or at least you were in diapers that sort of thing like that but it is a great movie in so many ways and and so i'm not going to give anything away too bad if you haven't seen the last 20 years that's on you not me but, you know, towards, towards the end of the movie, Neo, right, the protagonist, he's facing the agents 
of the matrix, of the machine, as it were. And, and they kill him, if you remember. And Trinity, of course, comes along in a romantic interlude, gives him a kiss that brings him back to life. He's resurrected, right? And then, of course, what happens? He faces the agents of the matrix again, and this time it's a different outcome. He's like, come at me, bros. Remember that? And as, as they do so, they fire the bullets, and they have no impact upon him. He's, he's defeated death, as it were. Paul says elsewhere in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is thy sting? Paul knows that he now has, and he writes about this elsewhere in that letter to the church in Corinth, that he has power now to say no to temptation. He has power now to live in contentment. Why? Because Jesus Christ has faced death and said, Come at me, bro. And he was resurrected. And now he is Lord. Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is not simply someone that we admire for his teachings because he's a great prophet or great teacher. We do more than admire him. We worship him because he is Lord of our lives, because he defeated death itself for you and for me. Therefore, he's worthy of our worship. No wonder, Paul says, he gives me strength in all things. He's the source of power. I love what Jesus says about himself in John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, he's in the desert where he's preparing for his, his ministry, his public ministry. And for 40 days he's famished. And Satan comes along in, the, in this great passage, when the, the great passages of the gospel accounts about, about the, the temptation of Jesus. And, and there Jesus in the desert is told by Satan, look, look around, all these rocks around you, all these stones. You have the power. You're God. Turn them into hot baking bread. You don't have to be famished. And Jesus said, no. Do you remember how he responded to Satan? He says, says, no. It was written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the word of God plumb line. Jesus had a plumb line. And it was the word of the Father. And he submitted himself to the will of the Father so that you and I would have the bread of life. You and I would have the bread that will never leave us hungry, that slakes our thirst. He's the living water as well. And so I'll leave you with this. I want to just a paragraph from a book called Counterfeit Gods by former pastor Tim Keller. Listen to what he says. Now he's talking about money, which I use this passage because Paul talks about money, but it's about more than that. Listen to what he says about Jesus. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status, one that money cannot give you. Money cannot save you from tragedy or give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. What breaks the power of money over us is not just redoubled effort to follow the example of Christ. Rather, it is deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ, which you have in him, and then living out the changes that that understanding makes in your heart, the seat of your mind, will, and emotions. The only thing that remains for you, brother and sister in the faith, is to say, is he the Lord of my life? Will he be the Lord of my life in my finances, in my sexuality? in my ethics, and so forth. Because if you can choose to love him supremely and to see what he's done for you, you will have contentment. You see, that at the end of the day, that is the answer. How do we gain contentment? To have our supreme affection in Jesus Christ above all other things. That will be tested this week. You will be tempted between the Sundays. In fact, you won't even have to wait. You'll probably be tempted later today with something. But may he be your passion. May he be the living bread 
and the living water. May he slake your thirst. May he satisfy your hunger so that you might say it is well with my soul and have the contentment that you were made for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have satisfaction. And that though contentment can be so elusive this side of heaven, you have made the way, you've given the power, you are the strength, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray, would you just press that upon our souls on the other side of worship today? Father, for my brothers and sisters who will wake up Monday morning and will be faced with with the temptation that they're familiar with, or perhaps will be an unfamiliar one, Lord, because of your grace, because of your gospel, because of your good news. Holy Spirit, speak the words of life into their hearts to break the power of sin and give them contentment to say, no matter how much I have, no matter how much little I have, I will be satisfied in you, Jesus Christ, today and tomorrow and thereafter. Thank you, Jesus, for the promise of your salvation becoming true and real. Thank you that you are our true plumb line. It's in that name that we pray. Now we take some time to respond to God's word uh, through confession. Uh, this week I was reading the book of Mark and the, the Jesus was going into the temple and the money changers were there selling things and he flips the tables. And, and what we see is Jesus very upset about anything that would get in the way from people encountering his father. And so he, he, he wants.